morning. Good morning, good morning. How are we doing? Come on in. Good to have you. I uh, will be teaching today in the next couple weeks. David is here, though, but we're still going with me, so bear with us. Uh, it's good to be here. Good to be back from a camping trip with many of your boys this week up on uh, the Manistee River. We had a good time. We got pretty wet. We were canoeing yesterday, and we were going to stay, in, oh no, Friday. We were going to stay until Saturday, and it rained for about four hours as we canoed, and we're going along and bailing out water in our canoes as we went. And I went by a few guys, and their bags were floating in their canoes, and so we made the call to just go home because, yeah, it was down to the 40s at night, and everyone's stuff was wet, so we're back. A good time. Well, today we're going to be looking at the life of John Calvin. How many of you heard of John Calvin? Yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> a lot of experts in the room today. Uh, you know, over this whole summer, this will for sure be the most well-known reformer, and for good reason. And so I, <clears throat> I think a lot of the stuff you may know about, I want to get more into his personal life. I would I think our understanding of his theology is, is fairly strong, but I want to talk about his personal life and really his life as a pastor and not focus so much on his life as a theologian. So we'll go ahead and get started. Silas, why don't you stand up and pray loudly? Amen. Well, so for the last number of weeks, two or three, I don't remember, we've, David's been talking, we've been hearing about Luther and Lutheranism and, and the great man Luther was and also the impact. And I think one of the telling things when you think about Luther and Calvin is you think about Calvinism versus Lutheranism today. You know, what comes to your mind when you think of Calvinism versus Lutheranism? How many Reformed Bible-believing Christians say they're Lutherans? You know, do you think of the Lutheran church as Reformed? You know, no one wants to be a, a Lutheran. <laughs> I'm saying this. My wife grew up in the Lutheran church, and what David was saying last week was absolutely true. It's Roman Catholicism 2.0. I mean, it is. We've, I've been to a few services, talked to my wife who grew up there. I know others did. Um, it's very similar uh, feel structure to the worship service, and so there's a <clears throat> big difference in the trajectory that Luther's teachings went, and then Calvin's. And with Calvin, and we'll dig into it today. I think really a big difference we'll see. And now remember, Calvin was after Luther. Okay, so whenever we're talking about the maybe the failure that where Luther Lutheranism went. Remember, Luther was the first punch in the fight. Luther was the first one to stick the iron into the fire. He took on the brunt of the work of Reformation, and he began this. He got the wheel turning, and men like Calvin and, and others benefited from Luther's initial push. So we have to remember that. You know, Reformation is a, a messy business, 
and it's not always perfect and clean cut. And so Luther got the wheel turning. Calvin came behind, and I would say uh, differed from Luther on, on certain things that were helpful, in particular the sacraments and their view. And we talked last week or two weeks prior about you know Luther holding to Constance. <laughs> I struggle with these words. Constantiation. Did I get it? Drew? <laughs> um, the elements being Christ's body in, under, within. Okay? Not Christ's body, kind of. Kind of a, a distinction, but not really. And that's held to this day, whereas Calvin differed. Um, we'll talk about worship today. Worship was central in Calvin's mind to the Christian life. Um, absolutely paramount. And so I want to walk through his early life, his background education. He was born in Noyon, France, which is <clears throat> northern France in 1509. His mother died when he was young. Um, his father was a notary for the local Roman Catholic cathedral, uh, staunch Roman Catholic family. His father, he had three brothers, Calvin, sorry, two brothers. The three of them grew uh, were the only ones to reach adulthood. The father wanted them all to be priests, and he pushed them that way. So they were educated. Um, they were put through schooling. And Calvin, as you would probably guess, was shown to be a brilliant student uh, from a young age. In fact, he was brought on and worked for the church at the age of 12. He got one of those, uh, I forget what they're called, those hair, you know, the monk haircuts. <laughs> you get those when you're committed to the church. We're we're thinking about that for this year's Pastors College students, but uh, he got one of those cuts at the age of 12, but it was signifying his commitment and his leadership within the church at a young age. Um, and so he, he worked for the church. He eventually would move to Paris, where he attended the University of Paris, and, of Paris and a few colleges within there, later would transfer to the University of Orleans, which is just south. Uh, in 1526, to study law. Calvin wanted to be a lawyer. He wanted to practice law, and Calvin talks about not wanting to go the route his father did, um, really before he was a Christian. We don't know when exactly Calvin became a Christian, but it was sometime in and during and sort of after college. But going into it, he didn't want to be a priest. He said he wanted a more secure lifestyle. He wanted money. Um, and throughout college, he was heavily influenced by the humanists at the University of Paris. He was drawn to that. And so again, somewhere in between 1529, 1533, during his college studies, he becomes a Christian, and he goes back to Paris. And one of the <clears throat> key things that begins, Calvin, as you may know, is, is <laughs> kicked out and banned. He's a Frenchman, but he's kicked out of France, and he, he returns, but he's never regained citizenship. He's, he's forever an alien, and one of the key things that brought this about, there's a man named Nicholas Kopp, who was a friend of Calvin. Actually, his brother Michael was also a, a childhood friend of Calvin as well, and he would later be in Geneva helping Calvin, but Nicholas Kopp was just elected the rector uh, of the University of Paris, and in his inaugural address, to the faculty and to the students, Nicholas Kopp speaks about the ongoing Reformation. Remember, the Reformation is going on. It's, it's, it's churning right now through Europe um, and through France. And he gives a lecture in support of the Reformation. He talks about the need for 
the Catholic Church to be reformed and, and for the, the evils of the church to be uh, done away with. And so he does this at inauguration, and there is a huge uproar against Nicholas Kopp for this. And also Calvin. It's not entirely clear, but Calvin may have written the entire sermon that he preached. Uh, certainly he had a lot of influence in the content of it. And so immediately after this, Kopp and Calvin, by association, are labeled heretics, and they have to flee France. And they're actually, um, they are summoned to death, and so they flee for their lives. And so this is the beginning of Calvin being a sojourner, not having a home. In fact, you know, he was a part of Geneva, but he never gained citizenship in Geneva either. They didn't let him. So he never really had a home. So he's forced to flee France. Um, oh, I should say one of the other things, too, during this that really nailed, uh, nailed the nail in the coffin. There was a, not quite sure who, but some group of reformers, uh, they put up posters. It was known as the Affair of Play Cards. They put up posters all over France, Germany, and even one of them somehow, and this infuriated King Francis, they got one of these posters on his bedroom chamber door. Someone got past the security and nailed it to his door. And so he was infuriated. The, the title of the poster was general, general, Genuine Articles on the Horrific and Great and Unbearable Abuses of Papal Mass Invented Directly Contrary to the Holy Supper of Our Lord's Soul Mediator and Soul Savior, Jesus Christ. These were put all over. This infuriated King Francis who would, after this, become more solidified in Roman Catholicism. Before, he was sort of, um, he was wanting to pander and support the Protestants to a certain extent. And, um, but after this, he's wholly against them. And one of the things to point out here is at this time, France was about 80% Protestant. Now, what's France today? Well, yeah, that's true. What are they? What are they known for? What's what's? Huh? Yeah, yeah. Roman Catholic. This is when it turned. Okay, it was eighty percent Protestant. This event happened, and it became Roman Catholic. All right, and this was this was kicked off by King Francis. And in fact, this would happen many years later. But it would build to this. Um, there was a group called the French Huguenots. They were the Protestants in France. And in 1572, there was a massacre. And this was planned for years. This was worked towards. This was a part of the nobility of France becoming Roman Catholic. They murdered 3,000 pastors in a 24-hour span. They had names, addresses. It was a coordinated assassination. And so this is what France becomes. So Calvin leaves. Now, um, Calvin was a brilliant man. He was trained to be a humanist lawyer. He loved reading books. He, and really what he wanted to do was sit and read and write books. And he was, he was great. He was like, you know, we think of Saul in Scripture. He was the Pharisee of Pharisees. He was the brightest man. He was the brightest of the Pharisees. This is Calvin. He was the brightest um, many of you know, he wrote, have you read uh, Calvin's Institutes? You know what age he wrote this? 26. 
don't even know if many 26-year-olds could read this today. I'm, you know, I struggle. <laughs> he was 26. You know, if you're, if you're feeling down and out and directionless as a 26-year-old, don't look to Calvin. He'll make you feel like more of a bum. Um, <laughs> incredibly bright. He wrote this at 26, um, shortly after becoming alive in the Lord. He travels um, for a while throughout France, fearing for his life. He ends up going through Geneva, Switzerland. Now, he was not intending to go there. He was just traveling through onto Strasbourg, but he goes there, and a local pastor named William Farrell learns of Calvin coming through. He already had some notoriety at this point, and William Farrell wanted to seek out Calvin to help him in the reformations that were already going on in Geneva. Now, William Farrell is kind of a lightning bolt of a guy. Uh, you can read accounts and stories of this guy, and and uh, it's kind of incredible. They would, things were pretty physical and violent in Geneva at this time. Um, part of the Reformation, you remember, they were, they were staunch against icons and imagery within the church and the worship of God. And so what William Farrell and, and men around him would do, they would go into churches and they would smash out the stained glass windows. They would take axes to the statues and cut them down. There's even one account where the church bells were ringing. You know, that's how they signified uh, when worship was be began. So the Catholic church is ringing. William Farrell and his men ran in before the, the Catholics could get to the service, took over the church building. He preached a fiery sermon, and then, you know, they looted the place and, and ripped down the idols and threw them out and smashed the windows. This is the kind of guy Farrell was, and... Now you have this intellectual coming to town, somewhat sophisticated man, and Pharrell's recruiting him. So Pharrell goes to him and asks him to stay. And what does Calvin say? No. Maybe some of his antics had something to do with it. He said, no. So, and the account of this is incredible. Pharrell then yells at Calvin, yells at him right there stories have it was in a pub yells at him you are pursuing what you want to do you are to stay here and if you don't god is going to curse your studies your writings and whatever endeavors you do after this yells at him and so how does calvin respond whoa he listens sort of incredible he calvin writes about this he says it was he viewed Pharrell's words to him as the very word of God, the words of God to him. You are to stay. Now, if we just stop here and think for a moment the, the impact, and I, you know, it's hard to speculate, but really, I don't know if we have Calvin the way we do today if Pharrell had never yelled at him in a pub, you know? Um, because this is what really triggered Calvin into the life of ministry as a pastor and not as an ivory tower theologian, which many would say that was what he was better cut out for at this point. You know, you think about this, and you think about, you know, has God ever spoken to you like this <laughs> through someone yelling at you? <laughs> you know, it's, it's incredible to think about the impact of these words and how they rocked Calvin and they changed his life. And so, you know, reading this and thinking about it, don't miss the ways God may be speaking to you. You know, it was incredibly humble of Calvin to listen to this man, and he agreed to stay. So he stays, 
And this begins what would encompass the majority of his, of his life as a uh, pastor and as a, even a theologian. So he begins his work there as a pastor and also a teacher, but it only lasts two years. Um, and like everywhere else Calvin's been, he's kicked out of Geneva. He upsets, <clears throat> excuse me, he upsets the civil authorities, and they actually ask him to leave after two years. He and Pharrell, and you can probably imagine why as they're going around smashing relics and busting out windows, they're asked to leave, so he leaves, and on his way, he, he ends up going up to Strasbourg. On his way there, um, he's crossing the Rhine River, and his horse falls, and he loses all of his notes and early, you know, so a lot of Calvin's early life and ministry, we don't know a whole lot about because everything he had was in those saddlebags. His horse drowns in the river, and he loses all of it. Kind of interesting. So he shows up to Strasbourg and has nothing except wet clothes. So guys who were canoeing with me, those wet clothes, that's all he had. Um, he shows up to Strasbourg with nothing, but one of the um, key friendships that he has, he's there for a number of years, is with Martin Booster, who has wrote a fairly popular book called Concerning the True Care of Souls. Now, I have not read this. I've started reading it, like a lot of my books, um, but from the parts I've read, it's excellent. And Martin Booster really was um, incredibly foundational to Calvin in becoming a pastor. And I, a lot of people who have studied this would agree, this is the time where Calvin learned to be a pastor with um, being with Martin Booster in Strasbourg. And so, you know, being kicked out of Geneva is unfortunate. It actually was incredibly formative, though, for Calvin because he learns from Booster, and when he returns to Geneva, it seems he's far more equipped as the work of a pastor and hits the ground running. And so that's the work that goes on. Um, he does return. Geneva asks him to come back in 1541. And so Calvin agrees and he goes back. And um, I want to read just a snippet. This is part of Calvin's impression of Geneva. He did not want to go back. He did not want to go back. But again, he felt a sense of duty to what, going back to what Pharrell had, had told him. Um, but this is Calvin reflecting on when he got there. When I first arrived in this church, there was almost nothing. So he's talking about the church in Geneva. They were preaching and that's all. So he's referring to Pharrell and the other guys. They were good at seeking out idols and burning them, but there was no reformation. Everything was in turmoil. <laughs> it's true. You know, the men who were there were, were doing work but it wasn't building anything, it was tearing down things. And so when Calvin comes back, he says, no, we're going to build something. We're not just going to tear down and be known for what we're against, but we're going to build things. And so I want to, this is another great book. We had to read this in um, Pastors College. And I still think one of my favorite books we read, Andrew, like I know Andrew and all the other guys uh, really enjoyed this. Um, I want to read just about some of the reforms and what Calvin really sought to do in Geneva and in the church. So the city churches, which the French Reformation called temples, were reduced in number from seven to three. Okay, so they're taking over what's primarily Catholic churches. He takes the seven, he says, all right, we're going to have three. And the outlying parishes consolidated, the ones in the country. 
A company of around 15 Protestant pastors soon replaced the roughly 500 priests, curés, cathedral canons, monks, and nuns who had once ministered in and around the city. Did you catch that? There were 500 priests, cathedral canons, monks, nuns who had ministers down to 15. Now, do you think the work just sort of subsided? No, the work took off. You know, and what this tells you is there wasn't any ministry going on. It had become bloated. It had become meaningless. And so Calvin recognizes and comes in and says, nope, we're going to have 15 godly men who preach the word of God. That's what we're going to do. That's what we're going to have. So 500 to 15. Reformed ministers officiated at public Public worship services wearing the attire of scholars, black gowns, white starch collars, and black caps, rather than the colorful vestments of the traditional clergy. And this was a big break from Roman Catholicism. He said, we're not going to, this isn't a show. This isn't a time to <laughs> dress up pretty. <laughs> this is about God. And so they're going to wear drab black clothing. And this was... This was a shock to the city. Their primary, this is about the pastors, their primary public responsibility was to preach expository sermons in the French vernacular rather than recite the Latin Mass. Now, this is something Luther and Wycliffe and, and going back had really begun, but again, we see Calvin implementing this here. It's got to be in the tongue of the people, right? Which makes sense. The people have to understand it. No one spoke Latin. No one. And so imagine coming to a church and a worship service in a time that's difficult, right? In a time where most children died. You know, what was the saying if your child made it to three years old? It was a, I don't remember the saying. It was a, it was a celebration. I mean, children rarely made it to three. And you go to church and you don't have the word of God. You don't even know what the priest is saying. So Calvin says, no, it's going to be in the French vernacular. Geneva's churches no longer observe the Catholic sacraments of confirmation, penance, holy orders, ordination, marriage, and extreme unction. Though the Lord's Supper and baptism were still celebrated, the liturgical form and the theological substance of these two sacraments were substantially changed. Okay, and this is where, again, Calvin veers from Luther and in a, in a right way, further away from the Catholic Church that too closely align Christ's body in and being the sacraments. And so Calvin says, no, it's spiritual. And this was a big thing. Public worship in Reformed Geneva was simpler and less ornate than a medieval church. You know, and this was true. Um, gone were the processions, the incense, the candles, the acolytes, the monastic choirs, the melodious organs. Instead, the reformers used a liturgy that gave priority to public prayers, the proclamation of the word of God, and a cappella singing in the singing of the Psalter. Even the rhythm of religious time was transformed as Calvin and Geneva's magistrates stripped nearly all religious holidays from the calendar. When the monasteries were closed and the divine office no longer recited, the bells of the city church now rang only to mark the time announced the daily sermons, and summoned Geneva's magistrates to their meetings. 
In all these and more, the texture of daily religious life in Geneva was radically altered during Calvin's time there. And so this was a snippet of the work that Calvin um, took on during this time. I mentioned at the beginning that worship, and we see a lot of the reforms Calvin makes in worship, uh, are central to his view. And, you know, Calvin would say, and, and you read it, and you, it's an interesting thought, Calvin puts worship above salvation in terms of the importance of the Christian life. Calvin would say it's worship and then it's salvation. Do you know why? Well, what he would say is salvation is a means to an end. And what's the end? Worship. Right? The end is worship. Right? The Christian's life is made to worship God. And so salvation is a way to to be able to worship God in perfect unity and harmony. But it is a means to the end. And so in, in Calvin's mind, in his theology, in, in his practice in life, worship was central. And so that's why we see so many of the reforms Calvin makes are all centered around worship and the liturgy. Um, <clears throat> so they had, again, he wanted to, to strip away anything that would, would hinder those worshiping God. That would be a distraction. Um, they, they had simple buildings. Again, Pharrell did a lot of this work. They had knocked out stained glass windows, which stained glass windows are, you know, they knocked them out for good reasons, but what do you have after you knock out a stained glass window? Big hole in the wall. They never repaired. And so as Calvin would preach, there's accounts birds would fly around and drop on the congregants as they're in service. And this was, and there was, the, the buildings were quite filthy. There was dust. It was an open air building, essentially. Um, but they did this to be committed to simplicity and to react against what the Catholic Church had become. Calvin wanted the church to, the worship of God to be simple and to be honest. There's um, a man named Passwind. I'll read his account. Uh, he, was, he wrote a satirical piece. I can't remember where he was from. Uh, but mocking Calvin, he, would, he joined a worship service. This is his account. Uh, he says, immediately the townspeople entered the church, each person choosing his own place to sit as in a school. And then they waited for the preacher to come to the pulpit. And immediately when the preacher appeared, all the people knelt down except the preacher. And he began praying in, un with uncovered head and his hands joined. His prayer was entirely in French. Remember, he's mocking him. <laughs> Created out of his own imagination. Right? It wasn't recited, which was com concluded with the Lord's Prayer, but not the Ave Maria. Then all the people were resounded quietly, Amen, and two times a week they sang a psalm before the sermon, but only in the cities. Everyone sings together while seated, men, women, girls, and infants. And, this is funny, if anyone recites a prayer in entering the church, he is pointed to and mocked and held to be a papist or an idolater. <laughs> funny. Um... So this was a, a, a real shock. This was a change. Um, Calvin would preach about three times a week, and he's known for preaching with no notes. And he would just bring up with him either the Hebrew or the Greek text. Pretty incredible. Some, some have thought, who've studied Calvin, that he could think in Hebrew. Now we can't prove that, but interesting thought. So the Reformed... 
the reform of worship was huge in the city and had other implications. The other thing I want to um, talk about today, and I think is uh, really one of the biggest ways that Calvin's influence has carried on and has really impacted us today, and I would say it's Calvin's obviously someone that I look to. I know many here often are reading his commentaries, um, but one of the things is his work with the consistory, which is a group of pastors, basically elders of the Genevan church, and where they would train up young men, and, and really the, the foundations of our pastor's college program is modeled off of what Calvin did here. And so really this is a, an important thing. Calvin, over his time in Geneva, recruited hundreds of young men uh, to send out as pastors. And he, Calvin would teach and train them along with other men, um, and they would often, many of them would live with Calvin during this time. How about that, David? Sorry, PC guys living with you. <laughs> um, Calvin would send, he would train up these men. This was a years-long commitment. And interestingly, they had city churches in Geneva, and they had country churches. And what they would typically do is they would send the pastors out to the country churches, and they had to serve there. I don't remember the amount of time, but they would send them there first. And the reason was is they wanted them to learn to be a pastor to the simple and the lowly, to the farmers. They didn't want them to, again, Calvin, out of his own background, said, we are not to be ivory-towered theologians. It's about the people. And so he'd send them out, brilliant men, but he'd send them out to the countryside, and they would have to work there as pastors uh, for many years if they were ever allowed to be a pastor in the cities. It's kind of interesting. Um, he wanted them to be humble men. He wanted them to serve the flock. Many pastors were sent to France. Um, it was one of the great works of Calvin uh, to, to, um, to reach the French Christians. And so, um, one incredible statistic about this, however, is that nearly half of the pastors that Calvin sent out were murdered. And it wasn't after the fact Calvin knew this. As Calvin was sending them out, he knew nearly half of the men he sent out were going to be killed. I think within a three-year span is what was typical, which, again, puts this into perspective, the work and the soberness that Calvin dealt in. And this was, a, again, a coordinated, like I talked about, the French Huguenots that would come later. This is coordinated by the French and Italian governments. They would actually hire assassins to hunt down pastors and murder them, often in their beds, often right next to their wives and children. And so whenever a pastor was sent out, and they, many of them were married with children, they were actually given maps that had safe houses marked out on them all throughout France. So <laughs> in the potential that their husband was murdered, the wives had a, a place to go and somewhere to flee to, eventually leading back to Geneva. And Geneva had set up, the Genevan church had actually set up um, sort of a, a system of welfare to take care of these women that would come back. And Calvin was certainly a part of this. And there's accounts of Calvin being woken up in the middle of the night to a, a, a widow with her children covered in her husband's blood on her nightgown. Her husband was just murdered, showing up to Calvin's door. And so this was, this was Calvin. You know, we think of him, the institutes, we think of his commentaries, his sermons. 
this man was a pastor who loved people. And so he would take care of them. Um, they had divvied up responsibilities. So when these women would come back, and as you can imagine, 50% nearly, it's a lot of families that the church took in and supported. Different people in the church and in the city had different responsibilities. Some would shelter, some would provide food. Calvin's job was to provide bed linen. That was his role. Now, Calvin had absolutely nothing. He had no money. Um, he was barely scraping by. And so what he would do, and, and you know, one of the crazy things with Calvin is we don't have any of his books from his library. Now, do you think the guy read some? Yeah, he's pretty brilliant. We have no books. You know why? Well, he didn't have money, and so when a woman would come and needed bed linen, he would take a book off his shelf, and he would go and exchange it for bed linen. And then if he ever saved up the money to go back and buy it from uh, the bookstore or whatever, Barnes & Noble, he'd go back and it was gone, right? And so Calvin did this for years. He used his books to buy things for these women, and his whole library is gone. It's, it was dispersed. It's incredible. <clears throat> Calvin loved people. I, uh, I want to turn now a little and continue talking about these, his love for others and, and the church in Geneva. Um, you know, he trained up these men, he sent them out. We also have, and this book contains a lot of it, fascinating, um, of the consistory records of, of Calvin and, and the elder board. And so you get a sense for how they cared for the people, um, how they were involved in their lives. You know, you think about Calvin, you think about his writing, you read about what he did, and you think, you sort of sit there and think, this guy spent his time dealing with that? You know, there's all sorts of situations. So-and-so yelled a curse word at so-and-so, and then they slapped him. And he's moderating this, you know, spending his time. And you, you think, you know, oh. but then you remember, no, this is a pastor. This is the shepherd. This is what made Calvin so great. And so I could read a lot of things in here. We don't have time, but you see that graph? <laughs> no. They have all sorts of records. I mean, they, you can look through here, and they have every, you know, they have the offense written down. Okay, fornication, scandals, blasphemy, lying, Catholic behavior. <laughs> Mom. Every time I ride the power tower with my mom, we get to the top and she breaks into the Hail Mary. Um, <laughs> you would have been censored in Calvin's church, mother. Um, illicit dances, okay? You people at weddings. Rebellion, drunkenness, ignorance, petty theft, gambling, violation of the Lord's Supper, folk religion, sermon violations. You fall asleep in the sermon. I think we might bring that back. No. Uh, begging. Anabaptist, heresy, okay. And you have the totals, you have the male-female breakdown, the percentage of the total and who committed it. And, you know, according to these records, there were, well, in 1567, there were 700 instances of suspension from the Lord's table. Um, I want to say it averaged to 100, 150 a year. Uh, now, couple comments there I suspension from the Lord's table it's a it it was a form of discipline 
Um, but it wasn't the same as excommunication. The Calvin had different levels, and we still sort of operate in this sense. But I bring this up to, to illustrate to you the involvement that Calvin and his pastors had in their people's lives. Um, you know, some, a lot of, even some in this book, you read the reactions to what Calvin and his pastors did, and they, oh, he was a tyrant. He was a disciplinarian. This man was unhinged at points for what they did. But I'm very sympathetic to Calvin and admire his willingness to go to the people and lead them and shepherd them and to call them to righteousness in every area. And he led this group of pastors to do this. And so they, they dealt with a lot in the church. They loved the people. <clears throat> Full excommunications were incredibly rare. You know, I read 700 in one year, but these were men and women that were loved in, within the church, and they weren't removed. Full excommunications, you know, where someone was you know, scandalously removed, it was only a handful of times. And so Calvin loved the peoples. Calvin is there until 1564, preaching to the very end. He dies of tuberculosis in 1564. He spends his last days preaching and coughing up blood on the congregation as he went. <laughs> you know. And so we don't know where he was buried. Again, this speaks to Calvin's dedication to the work of ministry. He had no money. He had no citizenship. No one claimed him. No one wanted him. And he was buried with the paupers. He had no possessions. Um, one of the more famous things that Calvin speaks at the end of his life, um, as he sort of calls in the pastors around and speaks to them, is he, he tells them to be on guard against all religious innovation in the future. This is what Calvin was really known for towards the end of his life. Be careful of any religious innovation. This, this stemmed from Calvin's commitment to the Word of God. He said, look, the Word of God has everything we need. Follow the Word of God in worship, in life, in everything. Listen and follow to the Word of God. Don't innovate. Don't try to make it fancy. Don't try to spin it in a way that is pleasant or seems more winsome. The Word of God has to be supreme. This is what Calvin um, emphasized, right? He emphasized this. He was big on having right doctrine and right practice. He was big on this. Um, and he gave his life to it. And so, you know, in thinking about the, the legacy of Calvin and his impact on us today, certainly we think about his writings, his commentaries. I would encourage you. I, I remember being a young man being intimidated. You're going to draw on Calvin. Practice reading it. It really is incredible. He writes it as a man who writes a pastor. I haven't read as much of his sermons, but I've heard they're even better than his commentaries um, because you get a sense for the man and loving and caring for people. It was not a theoretical world following God. It wasn't a, a far-off thing. It was real to him in the everyday life. And so I'd encourage you um, to read. You'll, you will benefit immensely from it. Um, but we do owe a lot to Calvin, this great man. Uh, I would say we owe a lot even in particular in our church 
for the ways, you know, these records of the ways that pastors trained men and raised them up is very similar to what we've sought to do here at Christ the Word. We've sought to have pastors training other pastors to send them out. We've sought to have men who love the Word of God and men who will proclaim it and without the frills, right? We've sought to not be about knowledge itself and, and uh, reputation and <laughs> clout before the world, but the Word of God reigning supreme. And so this was, I think, one of the greatest things that Calvin has given to us in this, in this model for how he ran the church, for how he reformed the church, and grateful for this man um, who did incredible things for God and was humble. You know, and I would encourage us all, be like Calvin. Calvin could have done anything. I mean, he was <laughs> probably the brightest man of his day. I mean, he had the world before him, and he said, no, he listened to this <laughs> Pharrell guy who yelled at him at a pub, you know, and it changed his life. And that's why we know Calvin today. That's why we celebrate and love him so dearly. And so we need to be Calvins. We need to be humble and do whatever God calls us to. Even if you have a deranged maniac, <laughs> this is God's path for your life. It might be. You know, it's incredible. And so we thank God for it. Let's pray.